we are going to be, I guess if I had to title this, I would call it Our King's Distress and Rest. Our King's Distress and Rest. We'll be going through Psalm 4. As I have said in previous sessions throughout the Psalms, when looking at our roadmap, we saw that by and large, Book 1 of the Psalms is mostly about the establishment of the Davidic kingship and Zion. And though we saw in Psalm 2 that God has installed his king on Zion, that God gave the Davidic covenant, which we discussed last time we were together, we are seeing that via the individual Psalms, before that triumph, there's suffering. There is distress before rest. And I agree with one commentator, J.C. McCann, when he says that book one of the Psalter is primarily about seeing David as the suffering Messiah who is God's son and depends on Yahweh's protection. So book one of the psalm should primarily be heard and interpreted in relation to David, a suffering Messiah who is, who is God's son and depends on Yahweh. He has many enemies all around, as we've been seeing so far. Thus, he needs to remind himself that God is his refuge. He needs that encouragement constantly, knowing God is his shield. It's a common theme we're going to find throughout the Psalter, especially Book 1. There's a lot of conflict in Book 1. Last time we were together, we primarily went through Psalm 3 and a tiny bit of Psalm 4. Today, I do want to finish up Psalm 4. Before we get into it, though, I do want to um, remind us of what we looked at in Psalm 3. So feel free to go ahead and turn there in your copy of God's Word, Psalm chapter 3. I'm just going to kind of do a uh, quick overview of what we looked at it last time. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes, how many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Again, notice that many, 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 that thrice declaration of the many rising up of David's enemies. They sought his crown, his life, and his hope in God. It's really a betrayal of his own people, his own kingdom. I mean, it came about through his own son. Um, thankfully, David, that blessed man who meditated on God's word day and night, knew better. Continue on in verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. This is the thrice hope of King David. God is his shield, his glory, and the lifter of his head. God as a shield is a picture of God as his refuge, though enemies are all about him. God is his 360-degree protection we talked about last time. So what has he to fear? God is his glory. That is, that's the best part of David's reputation. This is really the soli deo gloria life. David wanted to live solely to the glory of God. This is why he could say, this is my boast. God is my glory. And lastly, God is the lifter of his head, ultimately speaking of God giving David the victory over all of his enemies. This was confirmed, like we saw in the Davidic covenant, which is mentioned in the chapter right before this in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 8 through 9, reading, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Them being those who conspired against God and his anointed one, his Messiah. Continuing on, we saw that David prayed, he acted, and he ultimately waited on God, which led to the last section of the psalm, 
Psalm 3, verses 5 through 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The sovereignty of God, we saw, was a sweet pillow for the suffering Messiah here. He walked by faith and not by, by sight. And though literally there were thousands that were seeking his life, he knew that God was his shield, and so he had nothing to fear. Though there was, again, literally thousands of adversaries coming against him. This multitude, of course, was no match for the one that David called upon. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Like we saw last time, once the serpent's fangs are, are broken, what have we to fear of that serpent anymore? Where is its sting? Verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. So though the psalm started with the thrice many saying there was no salvation for David and God, David recognized the truth amongst the lies. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And as the king is blessed, so his people are blessed. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the kingdom. Again, that's going to be another theme we'll see all throughout the psalms. Because if we recall from last time, remember with the old covenant, it's really not until you have the Davidic covenant that you have a representative. Moses is a mediator, but David is a proper representative of the people. So as it goes with the king, so it goes with the kingdom. Well, this brings us properly to Psalm chapter 4, which is our main aim today. It's very much linked with Psalm 3. That's why I kind of wanted to give a quick overview of it. So let's start with looking at the title of Psalm chapter 4. It begins, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Unlike the last title, which gave us the historical context, this one's really just telling us who the psalm is written for. Most literally, it could be interpreted as for the preeminent one. Some have argued this is a nod to the seed from David's line that would eventually come that ultimate king. Some think it's just talking about, well, it's a psalm for God, the preeminent one. But because the rest of the verse says, with stringed instruments, which it's most more literally, um, it's like hand-plucked instruments. So probably talking about a guitar, stringed instruments of some sort, a lute. It's believed that this is actually, well, this is typically why it's, it's titled to the choir master. Um, if you're interested, First Chronicles 25 gets into all the nitty-gritty details about the temple worship and how they have several classes of singers, and each of those classes have choir masters or they have leaders. So as Matthew Henry says, though, Though it would seem that the choir master here was the only one that would sing these and he would be accompanied by music, not the people, the New Testament does appoint all Christians to sing. We went through that. Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 encourage us to sing the Psalms, all of us making melody in our hearts. Well, with what the superscription explains, we now come to the main course of this psalm. And in it, we find a well-balanced, chiastic structure. So if you haven't been here listening through all the psalm series, I believe it was in my second one, I, I spent the whole time just dealing with the Hebrew poetry and how that often reveals a lot to us. This is a book full of poetry, so understanding it was important. Um, this chiastic structure, again, um, it's, it's, it's one that's more set up like a poetic pyramid. So for example, in verses 1 and then verses 7 and 8, you were going to have a prayer. Verses 2 and 6, it's going to be talking about enemies, and it's both going to be dealing with questions. And then the high point of the psalm, the pinnacle, if you will, 
which is kind of pointing to the main point of the psalm, verses 3 through 5 is the exhortation. So it's really just prayer, enemies, and exhortation. That's the most basic outline of this, of this psalm laid out in the Hebrew poetry. So let's begin Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God, my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David begins the same way he did when he found himself in a tight spot in Psalm chapter 3 with prayer, calling upon God, the one who vindicates him, or the God who is his righteousness. Which, by the way, that phrase, God my righteousness, this is the only time you find this in the Bible. It's a precious title of God, which I would encourage you to use in your prayers. So David recalls God's path past faithfulness, and this is really the fuel for his present plea here. God has been his help in ages past, therefore David knows he will be his help in years to come. For God is the one who time and time again has been faithful to his people and has seen them through adversity after adversity, trial after trial. As Spurgeon put it, quote, this is another instance of David's common habit of pleading past mercies as a ground for present favor. Here he reviews the Ebenezers and takes comfort in them. When verse 1 here says, you have given me relief when I was in distress, a more wooden literal interpretation would be, in tight places you have made it broad for me. And I bring that out because that same phrasing is used in the prior psalm. That's one of our first connections showing how Psalm 3 and 4 are really linked. As commentators have pointed out, the lexical connection between tight places in verse in um, 4.1, and adversaries in 3.1, joins the natural effect of reading the two psalms in sequence to give the impression that Psalm 4.1 is a rehearsal of the way that Yahweh broadened out the constricted um, difficulty that David was in when he was running from Absalom. So this is what he's celebrating, and remembering that, he is calling out to God again. And this reminds us that the psalms are like life. Deliverances from one difficulty don't result in immediate enthronement. For our Messiah here, the promise was given in Psalm 2 about his triumph, but as we'll see all throughout Book 1, it doesn't come without distress. It doesn't come without suffering first. Distress precedes rest. The cross comes before the crown. Knowing this, David prays to God using similar wording as Aaron's priestly blessing that we often hear from Numbers 6. He calls out to God saying, be gracious to me. That priestly blessing reading, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. This is David's need, so this is David's petition. Believer, when you are in need, and if you're like me, um, one of my favorite hymns is, I need thee every hour. I'm reminded how much I need God's grace. I, I, um, as reading this psalm, it reminded me and made me really question do I go to God first when something comes up? Or do I fret? Do I panic? Do I um, stay up not having this peaceful sleep, but rather fretting? Um, or am I like David here? Do I go to God first? Oftentimes the answer, sadly, is no. But again, it reminds me of that, that wonderful old hymn, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. Me trying to do it in my own work, that never uh, brings about peace. And um, the Lord is working on me through my thick head, teaching me this more and more. So remember that we can cast our cares on him, for he cares for us. This is his bidding to us 
So we have no reason to delay this. Let us seek God first. Well, at this point in the psalm, this is actually the end of David's prayer. It's one verse. It is very short. David turns his attention from talking to God, from praying to God, and he goes and begins to speak to his enemies. Psalm 4, verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. Psalm 2 gave us the pattern that we are going to see time and time again. The wicked meditate on what? They meditate on vanity. Their counsel is vain. They're trying to overthrow the Lord. And here, it's, it's, it's even shown by David that they love that. They, they love their fighting against God. They love it. Um, it has really reached new heights. What is this shame? If you remember last chapter, David was talking about his glory, that is, God himself. So really, they're, they're shaming him, his trust in God, and ultimately, God himself. And when one has cast off God, and one just seeks to shame his glory, they're left with nothing but foolishness, loving vain words, seeking after lies. The lie, again, is thinking they could cast off God's rule. This is why, like we saw in Psalm 2, Yahweh in fury laughs. The heaven's throne he speaks. The crown will rest on Zion's hill for all eternity. Thankfully here, David, our blessed man who has not meditated on these vain things, but rather as a good king has been meditating on God's law, meditating on God's word day and night. He knows God is his refuge. He knows, like we saw in the last psalm, that salvation belongs to the Lord, even though they rise up saying there is no salvation. He knows that's just not true. And so he, and so he, he has this boldness, and he turns around the questioning. They've been questioning him, questioning his soul, causing him to distress. He turns it around and now is, is, is confronting them with a question. How long will you love these vanities, these vain things? And I find this really jaw-dropping because David is in peril, running for his life, and he takes the time to see the fool and speak wisdom to them, um, proclaiming the truth to them. This really, I think, more, more than some of the other psalms here, I really see David as a picture of wisdom, like from the Proverbs. Recall Proverbs 28.1, proclaiming the righteous are as bold as a lion. He sees fools, and he calls out like wisdom does in the streets. Wisdom sees them, it breaks wisdom's heart, cries out in the streets. Well, this brings us to verse 3. So first we saw prayer, God's enemies, or rather David's enemies, he confronts them with a question. This brings us to really the pinnacle of this psalm then, the exhortation. Psalm 4.3, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. The last chapter again, we saw God answer David from his holy hill. The chapter before that, the proclamation from his holy hill was in times when mockers were coming and mocking. Psalm 2.6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And in Psalm 1, the blessed man understands that the godly will have that Eden-like experience, planted like an evergreen, ever-giving fruit, um, by streams of living water. But not so, not so the wicked are like the shaft. The wind will blow them all away. The judgment they will not withstand nor sinners with the righteous stay. God knows the way of righteous ones. The wicked way will be undone. Again, 
David makes it very clear. It's a very black and white picture. You are finding your refuge in God, therefore blessed, or you are going to face his wrath. Who can stand before him? Psalm 4, verse 3 ends after simply explaining, really, if you just consider what it's explaining, the doctrine of election, and it adds, Yahweh hears when I call to him. Yahweh saves his righteous ones, and he hears them. This is election and its benefits, most plainly put. Spurgeon pithily said of this, quote, since he chose to love us, he cannot but choose to hear us. Since he chose to love us, he cannot but choose to hear us. And I do pray that this would give you a great encouragement in your times of prayer. Our times of prayer are not futile. They're not just, I got to do this, check this off my list. We are talking to the living God. Whether we have physical enemies like David did, or we're merely dealing with the spiritual, the world, the flesh, and the devil, we always have some kind of enemy against us in this world. They rise up, they say to our souls things like they said to David, there is no salvation for you and God. Your sin is too great. You've dealt with this sin. You've already passed that 77 times, whatever. These are things that will, that will come up. We need to be like David here, as bold as a lion, take these thoughts captive and confront them and deal with them as they are, simply declaring these are lies. As Spurgeon put it, I really love how he put it. He put, quote, The Lord's elect shall not be condemned, nor shall, they, nor shall their cry be unheard. David was king by divine decree, and we are the Lord's people in the same manner. Let us tell our enemies to their faces that they fight against God and against destiny. When they strive to overthrow our souls, O oh, beloved, when you are on your knees, the fact that you're being set apart as God's own particular treasure should give you courage and inspire you with fervency and with faith. Well, this continues on in verse 4. David, still speaking to his enemies, says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. How often we really get this backwards or completely wrong. We become angry and we continue in our sin, whatever it may be. Here the enemy is told, though, to be angry and to not sin, or rather to not continue in sin, as other translations really draw that out a little better, I think. There is an anger that is not wrong. We've all heard that. We've all heard of holy indignation. Um, God's enemies have thus far wanted nothing to do with God except to overthrow him, to overthrow his rule, to not, to not have to follow his ways, not have to follow Torah, as we saw in the first chapter. David is proclaiming to them, that doesn't really matter. Their warring against him is in vain because he has already decreed and installed his king on Zion's hill. His rule, his mount, it's a losing battle for them. God wins, the rebels don't. Their fighting is futile. So again, this is the, the contrast we see here. David's prayer is not futile, but those who seek to usurp the Lord and his rule, their fighting is futile. And at this news, this stirs up anger. And we've all experienced this whenever we passionately believe something and someone tells us, hey, you're wrong, whatever it is, we'll often get agitated, tremble, um, be angry. We can even get very self-defensive, double down sometimes, like, nope, I'm standing my ground, even if I'm wrong. And 
those emotions we get don't change the facts of whether what we believe is true or not. And so David is telling the enemy here, be angry, let this bother you, this should agitate you, that's fine, but don't let it lead you to continue in your sin. If you're still in rebellion against God, then you've been warned. You know what the consequences are. Vent your emotions, that's fine, but don't continue in your future rebellion that will lead you down the path of being dashed like a fickle, fragile little flower pot against an oncoming steam train. There's, there's no hope. There's the, and that's just a pale comparison of what is actually coming for them. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. In other words, deal with your troubled conscience. As Calvin explains on this point, quote, that is, to take an account of themselves at leisure, in some place of deep retirement, an exercise which is opposed to their indulgence of their unruly passions. In the end of the verse, he enjoins them to be still. Now, it is to be observed that the cause of this stillness is the agitation and the trembling of which he made before mention. For if any have been hurried into sin by their infatuated recklessness, the first step for their return is to a sound mind, to awaken themselves. And to awaken themselves from this deep sleep, to fearfulness and trembling. After this follows a calm and deliberate reflection. Then they consider and reconsider to what dangers they have been exposing themselves. Again, just that pottery coming up against that iron rod. There is no hope for the sinner in that case. They need to consider this. To commute upon one's bed is a form of expression taken from the common practice and experience of men. We know that during the daytime, our thoughts are distracted, we're busy, we have a lot going on, a lot grabbing our attention, but in solitude, we can better think. Think of the times we are having a shower, our electronics are away, kids aren't pestering us, or trying to ask us or whatever, I shouldn't say pester. Um, and that's often, you know, we hear shower thoughts, like our mind is going, we're, we're thinking a little deeper. Or when we lay down to sleep, Instead of actually sleeping, our mind is racing and going throughout the day, categorizing everything, wondering if we did this right, anxious for the concerns of tomorrow when we really should be sleeping. Um, this, this is a common practice of men. It happens in solitude. And this is exactly what David is encouraging the sinner to do. Yes, be bothered. Let your conscience is bothered. Now take some time alone and go think about this. Be angry, but do not sin. This exhortation has a respect to us all, for there is nothing to which men are more prone than to deceive one another with empty applause until each man examines himself and communes alone with his own heart. Paul, when quoting this passage in Ephesians 4.26, skillfully and beautifully applies it to this same purpose. He there teaches us that man, instead of wickedly pouring forth their anger against their neighbor, have rather just cause to be angry with themselves, in order that, by this means, they may abstain from sin. And therefore, he commands them rather to fret inwardly and to be angry with themselves. And then to be angry not so much as to the persons, but as to the vices um, of others. End quote. That was all Calvin. Well, I threw in some stuff from there, but most of that was Calvin. When we look at the context of when Paul uses this verse, in Ephesians, he is talking about the new life in Christ and what it looks like. And he's explaining it to 
people that have no background in the law to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, 25 through 28, for example, he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, have something to give. Like, what's going on here? This is just put off sin, put on Christ. Put off law-breaking, put on law-keeping. Fulfilling of the Ten Commandments, if you will. So going back to Psalm 4, what is David ultimately exhorting these enemies to do then? Uh, Psalm 4, let's uh, continue picking up at verse 5. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. What is David doing here? To put it in the most Christianese, New Testamenty type language, it's a call to repent and to trust in the Lord. A call of repentance, repent of your sins and trust in the Lord. David is exhorting them, stop making war, bow the knee. He already said this to them in Psalm 2. Now therefore, O ye kings, be wise. Be warned, ye rulers of the earth. Serve thou the Lord and serve with fear. Rejoice with trembling, fear with mirth. Kiss ye the Son, right? Pay homage to him, bow the knee, lest in his wrath ye perish in the way. For quickly kindled is his wrath, but blessed are all who in him stay. Yes, if you have been warring against God, you can't win, is what these Psalms have been making very explicit to you. You can't run from him either. We are called to run to him as our refuge. That is the only safe hiding place we have. And I think there is application for Christians as well. If we have been warring with our sin in our own power, that too is going to be a losing battle. We need to seek refuge for him, not just for salvation, but for all aspects of salvation, for our sanctification as well. We don't want to try to fight it alone. Spurgeon on this verse declared, provided that rebels had obeyed the voice of the last verse, they would now be crying, what shall we do to be saved? And in the present verse, they are pointed to the sacrifice and exhorted to trust in the Lord. When the Jew offered sacrifices righteously, that is, in a spiritual manner, he thereby set forth the Redeemer, the great sin-atoning Lamb. There is, therefore, the full gospel in this exhortation of the psalmist. O sinner, flee ye to the sacrifice of Calvary, and there put your whole confidence and trust in him. For he who died for men is the Lord Jehovah. With that, we have seen the high point of the Psalms. Again, remembering our structure, it starts with prayer, began with a prayer of distress, a present plea based on past faithfulness. It dealt with our enemies. Really, it questioned them turn the questioning around on them. How long will you believe vanity and lies? The high point there, the exhortation to repent. Really, there's, if you broke it down, you'd see seven imperatives in there. And so now we're back looking down, going down the mountain, if you will, dealing with our enemies. There's another question asked. Here it is, um, Psalm 4, verse 6, really 6a, the first part. It asks, there are many who will say, who will show us some good? And that's a fair question. In a world that is full of backbiting, every man for himself, who can we trust in this world? If this is the same historical context that David was dealing with in Psalm chapter 3, where his own people have started an uprising against him, they're seeking his life. His own son is trying to kill him. 
then they know best of all that this world is full of, of traitors, of scoundrels. They're the chief of them at this point. To whom could they look to for some good? And that's a side note as well. This is the same phraseology we have in Psalm 3, verse 2. You just get another connection. Um, when he's asked, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Again, he's really turning the tables on them in this psalm. Verse 6 continues, and this is where I believe the, the prayer starts. Verse uh, 6b, lift up the light of your face, O Lord. Our king here doesn't just allude to the priestly blessings of number 6, like he did earlier, asking for grace. He is now offering this as an answer to the enemy, his traitorous people, if you will. Once they have repented and put their trust in Yahweh, they ask, well, now what is the good we're to go for? Can he really show us good? Possibly they're asking in a continual scofferish way, like, can he really show us good? And David's answer is God's grace. You need him. There's no other way, whether, whether they're asking this question and scoffing or they are being legitimate in their question. The answer is the same. You need God's grace. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Really, at this point, David may as well just give the full priestly blessing, which is properly for God's people from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He started with calling down blessing, this, this ironic blessing on himself, and again, we see another example of as it goes with the king, so it goes with the kingdom. No more warring, no more needing to look for good or for joy anywhere else. They have arrived if they, if they heed this call of David here. As another psalmist would put it in the 73rd Psalm, but for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. And there's that, that theme of refuge that we see all throughout book one that I may tell of all of your works. In Psalm 4, Psalm 3 and 4, I really see David living that out. God has been his refuge. He has saved him. And David doesn't just kind of cloister up and thank God. He, it, it comes out. He tells others about this. He's now proclaiming God's work. David is not, again, boasting in himself. God truly is his glory, his boasting. Really, really amazing. And it reminds me of, just like we saw in Psalm 2, the unbeliever has, is warring against God. They have kindled God's wrath. And what happens? God offers mercy to them. The gospel is explained to them. Be warned. Kiss the sun. Here again, know that you need to repent and believe. Basically, verse, verse 4 put it. Offer right sacrifices, put your trust in the Lord. Reminds me of when Habakkuk prayed, Oh God, in wrath, remember mercy. This is such a huge picture of the long suffering of our God. Patient, um, proclaiming to them the gospel freely proclaimed to sinners warring against them. It's truly incredible grace pictured here. Also, I already said it, but I don't want us to miss it. David the king from the line of Judah, prays for the people in the words of Aaron the priest. This is really an anticipation of that Psalm 110 king who will be priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
does the text need to explicitly say this is a picture of Jesus? I mean, it, this is one of the most explicit parts of it. You have a king here acting as a priest. I don't know how else to put it. So, All right, well, now we come back to how we started uh, the very end of it. We started with prayer. That was a prayer of distress. We end with prayer. It's not going to be a prayer of distress anymore. Let's see what kind of prayer it is. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Abounding grain and wine would be just cause for rejoicing. That is a good gift. That is a way to celebrate God's providence. Nothing wrong with that. But in light of God himself, there is no competition. You can let the world bring its greatest dainties, its greatest blessings. Um, I think it it was uh, Matthew Henry who, who would say, the unbeliever is constantly just inventing things to be enamored with, to distract themselves from their conscience. We find this very true. No matter what bright, shiny object we have, there's going to be something better next month and better and better, and on and on it goes. And I've heard that my whole life, and it has always been true. Um, of course, you can just read the song of, um, or you could read, um, not the song of Solomon. Uh, what's the other one Solomon wrote? Why am I blinking? Ecclesiastes, thank you. It just came to me. I heard a voice. So David has exhorted others to go to their beds and think upon what they have done. In in future Psalms, Psalm 63, for example, we will see David himself did that practice. He did just that. He says in 63.6, I, David, remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Again, he is our good king who is blessed for he meditates on God's law day and night. So it makes me ask the question, well, what then? He has a clean conscience before God. God is his refuge. He has no sin in his life at this moment. Um, He meditates on God's Torah day and night. He shows that he's delighting in God. What else is there left for him to do? Final verse, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Shalom. That is the duty left for the saint here. We saw that in the past tense, in Psalm 3, 5, you remember, he said, I lay down and slept, I woke again, and the Lord sustained me. Here we see it in the future tense, I will lay down and sleep. That's why Psalm 3 is called a morning psalm, Psalm 4 is considered an evening psalm, and we see this kind of back and forth, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, going throughout the first several psalms, which some people have alluded to. Um, or have believed that this is what Psalm 1 is alluding of meditating on it day and night. God gives you that structure right away to help you if you can't figure that out yourself. Um, so anyways, these are great examples of Psalm, like if you find some, some ancient prayer books um, from other ecclesiastical orders and whatnot, you'll often find Psalm 3 as a morning hymn, Psalm 4 as an evening one. You can, you can basically see why. Of course, it's appropriate at any time, but there it is for you. So, well, Regarding the last two verses, I love how Andrew Bonar points out that the language of grain and wine and dwelling in safety alone is an undoubted allusion to the blessing that Moses gives, or rather after the blessing Moses gives in Deuteronomy 33, where he says, or it's, it's, it's after he gives the blessings to the nations, and then this is the commentary on it. It says, so Israel lived dwelling in safety, Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens drop down dew. Andrew Bonar says, quote, 
In this psalm, the godly one anticipates that blessedness as yet to be his portion. And so we see him fixing his eyes on the future. Even while at present, his gladness is greater far than all the earth can yield. The vanity of the sons of men is all the more clearly seen in the additional light of the coming glory. And again, if this psalm is David talking to those who have betrayed him, uh, like in Psalm 3, then these are his fellow people. They may say, well, this is the kingdom God promised us. We took it by force. And David is just, you know, he's not sending his hope on this. He knows this is but a shadow. He knows there's something greater. He still has a higher joy, even when he's running for his life in the wilderness. Those who live by faith, who are highlighted in the so-called hall of faith in Hebrews 11, like Moses and David, it's said of them that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. By faith, they were looking forward to the city who has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. David saw past an earthly plot of dirt and had a courageous, steadfast faith in the midst of despairing trials because he had God as his refuge. God was his portion. This reality makes the things of earth grow faintly dim, as that that old hymn would say. He looked for the new heaven and the new earth, ultimately, where righteousness dwelled, where there was no enemies dwelling, and ultimately where he could behold his God face to face. Simple application for us regarding that. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize. Don't let the passing pleasures of this world cause you to lose that eternal perspective. It's so easy to lose in all the hubbub and distractions of our day. Like Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, set your eyes on things above. Distress, then rest, the cross before the crown. So again, what is left for the saints? Pray, say goodnight to God, for it is he who gives his beloved sleep. This is just another blessing of those who find refuge in him. So that is Psalm 4. Again, that that thing of that chaotic structure of it began with a prayer. It was a prayer in distress, present plea based on past faithfulness. It ended with a prayer, a prayer really of, of peace, the gladness and shalom that God gives. Above that, you had both uh, verses asking questions. The enemy's question, how long will you love vanity and lies? Who will show us some good? And then up there at the apex, you have the exhortation to repent and believe Simple, straightforward call. Again, like I was saying earlier, through this psalm, we can hear and see David, I think, as a clear picture of wisdom. In the Proverbs, Proverbs 1, for example, how how it starts, 22 through 23, you have wisdom calling out, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you, I will make my words known to you. Recalling that David is the voice of Christ in the Psalms, we hear this same voice come when wisdom is dwelling with us in the flesh. He was rejected by his own people, even though he had come to them like David. And this preeminent one, this one from the seed of David's line, would ultimately sit on David's throne forever and ever. But he would also, before that triumph, look over his people and cry out, Like in Luke 19.41, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? Or at another time, crying out, Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings as, as, as a refuge, and you were not willing. That unwillingness comes with consequences, as we have seen. Jesus not only proved himself the greater David by his perfect wisdom, but even in his life. Jesus was the one whose glory was put to shame, ultimately. It was not believed his person, his work. They denied his deity. They sought to stone him for such things. The rules of his day conspired to kill him. Yet the New Testament says that David spoke of Jesus in Acts 2 when it said, and again, this was quoting a psalm, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Again, he, for the joy set before him. He had that, that same view David had. And though Jesus' enemies continued to taunt him and ultimately crucified him, he was laid down in a tomb to sleep, but it was a sleep of death. Still in another psalm wherein we hear Jesus' voice, we find that he clung to the promise. Acts 2.27 again, quoting another psalm. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. He knew, like David here, that God has set apart the godly one for himself, for his purposes, and those purposes could not be thwarted. God had set his king on Zion's hill. No one would thwart that. This is most explicitly explained in the several verses right after Acts 2 there, Acts 2, 30 through 32. The apostles make it clear. Being therefore a prophet... This is speaking of David, which this is saying David was a prophet, priest, and a king, and these are the offices of Christ. This is very explicitly pointing to Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Therefore, being a prophet, David, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set one of his ascendants on the throne, that's the Davidic covenant, Allah Psalm 2, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. I lay down and slept. I awoke again. The Lord sustained me. This is ultimately a foreshadowing, a picture of Christ, of his burial and his resurrection. Him being laid down in that sleep of death in the tomb, and again, his glorious resurrection, ascending to the throne of David as king of kings, lord of lords, sitting at the Lord's side, now resting and this is really a, the answer, ultimately, to David's prayer. David's prayer for peace, for, for rest, for a dwelling place, came about because Christ slept the sleep of death. That's ultimately the deliverance that David prayed for. And again, as it goes with the king, so it goes with his people. The Lord hears when I call him, David would say, as we have we, I mean, we come and celebrate on a Sunday, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We clearly believe and know, indeed, Yahweh hears and answers prayer. This is the king's rest after the stress, the cross, and then the...